Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. For those of you maybe visiting or don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take one of the Bibles you'll find at the ends of the rows. And uh, if you're looking for the verse, it'll be uh, Matthew 5 is on page 472 in our pew Bibles. This summer we're focusing on a particular piece of Jesus's teaching in the Beatitudes. And we're looking at the Beatitudes for a simple reason. We think Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes the very thing that we all long for in some ways, which is the good life. Everybody, whatever state or belief system you come from, longs for the good life. And uh, we all search for it, we all work for it. And today Jesus, I think, lays out for us another piece of that good life uh, in the fourth Beatitude where he talks about a great issue that we all long for, and that's satisfaction in our souls. So here's the scene. Uh, Jesus has uh, been ministering early in the life and ministry of his uh, work, and he is actually talking to his disciples about what it means to live the good life. And starting in verse 1, we'll see how that happens. In verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowd, he that is Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, whatever you believe about life and God, we're all going to agree on one thing. We all assume that in some things in life, whether it's business, how you do your yard, how you parent, how you live, there are rights and wrongs. Certain things are done in a right way and a wrong way. And that's true even when it comes to football. That's right, it's football season coming up soon with the Panthers, among other things. But there have been moments, even one moment we'll highlight today, where the right and wrong of a football game surprised us. Back in the 1960s, uh, there was a football game and a football person, in particular, in a game uh, that did a wrong thing in the midst of a football game. One of the best-known teams of that time was well, the Minnesota Vikings. And they were really a good team. In fact, they were so good that they ended up in the Super Bowl multiple times in the 60s and the 70s. And they had a vaunted defense. They were called the Purple People Eaters, which is a great name, the Purple People Eaters. And on that Purple People Eater defense was a man named Jim Marshall. He went on to play for about 20 years in the NFL. On October 25, 1964, uh, Jim Marshall did something that left him in football lore. In a game against San Francisco 49ers, Jim Marshall made an amazing play, amazing defensive play that stood out that day. He uh, actually got a hold of the quarterback for the 49ers. His name was Billy Kilmer, and Billy Kilmer fumbled. Jim Marshall picked up the ball and went straight to the end zone. What was striking to Jim Marshall as he went to the end zone is that no one, not even the San Francisco 49ers, were trying to stop him from going in the end zone. What had happened, apparently, is Jim Marshall got turned around in the process and ran to the wrong end zone, and instead of scoring a touchdown for his team, he actually 
scored a safety for the other team. He knew this was the case when all the 49ers gathered around him in the end zone and started giving him high fives and loving on him in the process. So clearly, in the case of Jim, uh, Jim Marshall, uh, he uh, was at, left at a place where he and Viking fans went from a place of elation to deflation, all because for a moment he played the game the wrong way. There is a right way and a wrong way to play the game, and that's true even of life, the good life that we've been talking about this summer. And today Jesus talks about the right way to play the game of life in these Beatitudes. So let's look at, do a quick overview of what we've seen in the Beatitudes in these first verses of, of uh, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus has already told us some crazy things about what it means to live the good life. He's told us first that we're to be poor in spirit. Uh, that is, that we are to come clean and admit we're spiritually bankrupt and that we need God to fill us and give us the riches that we don't have. He's even told us some crazier things, that the good life gets better when we mourn our sin and the brokenness of our world. We actually get sad instead of happy about the brokenness that we have. Last week, we learned from Josh that the good life moves forward when we are meek. That is, that we humble ourselves. We are, in the illustration he gave us so apt, we are gentled as wild stallion horses by the power and grace of God. So that begs the question today, uh, what is next in the story of the good life as Jesus gives us? Well, today he talks about the experience of satisfaction, how we actually feel satisfaction in life. And that begs the question, how do we gain Lasting satisfaction in the good life according to Jesus. Well, Jesus blows us away again with this unexpected, upside-down, crazy-making idea of what actual satisfaction comes from when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does, is Jesus getting at? What does he mean when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, let me highlight three things today to describe this first half of the Beatitude. And the first thing I remember is, let's remember that Jesus is talking about the good life of following him, and he calls it blessed. And like we've said these last, uh, this last month, blessedness is actually a state of thriving, of flourishing. I mean, blessedness can mean happy, but it's much richer and fuller than that in the sense of thriving in life. Thriving are, the hung, are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The second thing Jesus is telling us is he uses the language of hunger and thirst for gaining this thriving life. And this combo of hunger and thirst is used throughout the scripture normally to talk about physical thirst or physical hunger. However, here in this text, Jesus is really getting after spiritual thirst and spiritual hunger. There Really, hunger and thirst are metaphors for strong desire, what we really want and feel we need in the deepest sense, so that we can say, blessed are those who have strong desires, as Jesus is saying. So there come, that brings us to the third point, which is, what is Jesus saying we should have strong desires for? Well, Jesus highlights in this text one main thing that we have strong desires for and really make up the, the thriving life, and that's a strong desire for righteousness, 
righteousness. What does Jesus mean by righteousness? I mean, we don't use that word a lot. It sounds like a real biblical word, but we don't use that word a lot in our culture. Well, when Jesus talks about righteousness here, he is talking about the righteousness of God. And that is a righteousness with reference to God. God himself is righteous, and his very being and his word is a standard for righteousness, if you will. What this means is that God is first and foremost the very standard of what is right and wrong. And when God speaks, he speaks to what is actually right and wrong. He gets the first dibs on that because he is God. So God is the standard, if you will, of righteousness. And righteousness would be acting in a right way, doing what is right in the sight of God. But here's what you need to think, understand about righteousness. Not only does righteousness uh, present a standard of right and wrong, uh, it also in Scripture takes something that is wrong and makes it right. That's called salvation. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that righteousness is often connected to salvation and God's deliverance. It's an action that God does for people to make them right. God makes wrong things right through his salvation. So when Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he's talking about God's standard, and he's talking about God's salvation as well. Now what does that look like, according to Jesus, when he brings up the blessed are those who are hungry, uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, I'm going to give you three re's to explain what this righteousness, how it plays out in real life. And the three re's are relationship, renewal, and reform. Relationship, renewal, and reform. So first, Jesus starts talking about righteousness in a relationship sense. What does he mean by that? Well, uh, according to the Bible, we all have a broken relationship with God in our sin. Our sin offends God. And as a result, that offense, that offense breaks relationship with God and has legal implications to how we've broken God's law. Another way to say is we are unrighteous over and against God's righteousness. So God must make us righteous. He must reconnect relationally with us by initiating that in our lives. We can't do it ourselves. And how does Jesus do that? How does God do that? He does it legally in something called justification. Okay, now we're getting big words. Justification. When you receive Christ for the first time by faith, you are legally justified in the court of God because Christ has done some things for you. You're justified because of Christ's death on the cross. You're justified also because Christ has lived a holy life for you. We'll come back to that in a second. In other words... Christ, God forgives us because of the cross. God sees Christ's work and not ours in our justification. Justification by faith is the only way we can have a right relationship with God in the court of God. And here's a way to kind of remember the justification thing, because it's a big word, it's hard to conceptually remember it is. Justification has two components. It's just as if I never sinned, And, don't forget this, just 
as if I lived a holy life. It's both and. Just as if I never sinned because I'm forgiven in Christ, just as if I lived a holy life because of Christ's righteousness. Now, when we talk about justification, we often talk about imputed righteousness. That's the kind of old reform word. And it's a fancy way of saying that God, when he sees us, sees Christ's righteousness. And I got to tell you guys, this is one of the missing pieces of how we actually follow Jesus even in the good life. For many believers, we understand Jesus died for our sin. We've heard it forever. We believe that. However, we forget that his holy life and sinlessness covers us too. Think of the language of covering in scriptures. At the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God sacrificed an animal and covered Adam and and Eve in the skins of that sacrificed animal. In Zechariah 3, God takes old clothes from Joshua, the high priest. He takes them off of him and puts new glorious clothes on him as well. In the story of the prodigal son, a well-known story, the father, when the prodigal comes back home, the prodigal puts a new coat and new clothes on his son. This clothing language shows up even in Romans 13 when it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture's picture here is that believers are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here's why that matters. If you don't have a concept of Christ's righteousness covering you with his record, you will spend your life, even as a Christian, trying to perform and make a record for yourself. Oh, you'll feel forgiven, but then you'll feel the need to have that record because only the righteous can stand in the place and with God in heaven. To have a truly good life Hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness, for his record, you must embrace that. The second thing, and that was a big point, but that's important. When we talk about the righteousness of God and how we hunger and thirst for that, the second thing you want to grab onto is Jesus is not only talking about a right relationship with justification in Christ's record, his imputed righteousness, he's also talking about renewal in our sanctification. Sanctification is that process where we're made more holy and more righteous in our own actual living. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God calls us to become more righteous in how we live as we are healed and forgiven. And by the way, that's a proper response to forgiveness. If you've experienced forgiveness, then you go live a new way. You go a different direction in repentance in your life. Jesus calls us to follow him and to line our lives up with him as we put off the old and put on the new in how we live in various ways. Therefore, personal righteousness becomes a high value for those who are in a right relationship with God, who've been justified in him. Personal righteousness is key. They hunger and thirst for what is right in the eyes of God in how they live. So to live a truly good life, you die to sin and you live to righteousness in the ways and rhythms of your life. 
And one of the things I've had to learn through the years as being a pastor is when you're a pastor, you get to be in positions of power and influence, at least on a local church level, but in other places as well. But you know, one of the striking things I've learned is I, I had a very worldly idea of power, and I still wrestle with this to this day, this worldly idea that the more powerful I get, the more I can have things my way. But the thing about Jesus is when you follow him, what you really begin to realize is the more powerful you get in places of influence and things like that, the more you have to die and give up. And I got to tell you, that's a hard thing for me. But Jesus is working on my life in that way, here in this plant and in other places, where I'm having to give up more, where I have more places of influence, where I get less of my way and more of what Jesus wants through me and in his people and with his people. Wherever you are a person of power, you will influence, but you're going to also get less and less of your way because the way of Jesus is going down the ladder, not up the ladder of having your way. Third thing Jesus talks about in our text when it comes to righteousness is he's not only talking about relationship and renewal, he's talking about reform in community. When righteousness is used in the Old Testament prophets, it almost always alludes to how the church and even society is working or not working. This includes the care of the hurting, the poor, the protection of the oppressed, and the deliverance of those who cannot help themselves. The good life of righteousness doesn't just end with me and Jesus, which is our functional way of doing things in America. Me and Jesus, that's it. Now, the good life actually includes us and Jesus, and yes, even them in Jesus, and how we bring righteousness to the fore in some kind of social justice. Now, that's a loaded subject for us in our time, even as the church. And we, that's what you would pray for us as the church for discernment about how much we get involved with, what we get involved with, to serve our community, starting with even in our own ranks, how we love one another first. We need wisdom about that. Pray for us as we as a church think through how to do that properly and understanding our proper role in our community. Longing for the good life in God's kingdom is longing for the righteous life. Longing for the good life is longing for the righteous life in relationship, renewal, even reform. Longing for the righteous life, we actually find satisfaction. The problem is we often hunger and thirst for the wrong things, for unrighteous things. In his book, Sahara Unveiled, William Langwich tells the story of an Algerian named Laglag and his companion who drove their truck across the Sahara Desert. In that drive, their truck broke down in the middle of the desert. And the result was they spent almost three weeks in the Sahara Desert before they were finally rescued. After a few days, as you might imagine, they were dehydrated. And they dug a trench under the truck to escape the heat. After a few days, their thirst became intense, and 
The technical word for that, just so you know, is hyperdipsia or polydipsia. Hyperdipsia is, is temporary intense thirst. Some of us feel that sometimes for whatever reasons. But polydipsia is sustained excessive thirst for days on end. After going to the edge of death with polydipsia, Laglag and his companion did the unthinkable. They drained the radiator fluid out of the truck, and they drank it. This is an image of what we actually do when we hunger and thirst for unrighteous things. We drink radiator fluid. And I think there are two ways in our time and our culture that we drink the radiator fluid. And the first is this. We try to find satisfaction through pleasure. Through pleasure. Now, pleasure isn't a bad thing. We were made to take pleasure in life and even the good gifts of God and supremely God himself. However, there's a difference between the pursuit of temporal pleasures and true satisfaction. You can pursue, pursue money, sex, power, achievements, relationships, countless other things, and you'll never really find satisfaction. In fact, Gary Burns of Emory University says that the pursuit of, uh, of this ongoing pursuit of pleasures, or hedonism as we might call it, is never-ending. It creates something called the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill is where you get one uh, buzz from uh, getting excited and experiencing a pleasure, and then you go searching for the next one, go for another buzz and another buzz, and it's never enough. great example of this was like when you're in your career, and you're thinking, mm, if I just made 10000 more a year, then everything would be okay. Well, what they found is in studies that when people make more money, they get used to that life pretty quickly, and then they're longing for just a little bit more. It's never enough. Pleasure actually uh, never really gives you satisfaction. What Gary Burns, and this is kind of a secular guy says, is that actually satisfaction comes when you connect your pleasure and your seeking to purpose, to meaning. That's what God's righteousness does. It connects your actions and your pursuits to a purpose. Second way we try to satisfy ourselves is one very near and dear to me. It's self-righteousness, not God's righteousness. And here I speak particularly to those of us who are the religious types. Self-righteousness is our attempts to right ourselves with God and in the world so we will feel right about things in life. The danger of self-righteousness shows up in Romans 10, where Paul talks about the tragedy of the Jews who did not understand or know the righteousness of God, but instead tried to establish their own righteousness. The problem was they relied on themselves and their own efforts and assumed they could live up to God's law. They actually thought they could love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and check that box off every once in a while. What does self-righteousness look like? 
Well, it looks like comparative moralism. This is what comparative moralism looks like, uh, where you say things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. <laughs> it comes in recalling our good works. Well, I did that religious thing or this accomplishment for God. I served in this way, therefore I must be good is often the conclusion. It comes with excuses. Well, if you only knew how hard it's been for me, you'd understand why I didn't do that right, but look at what else I've done. It comes in telling stories about ourselves where we come out to be the hero every time. When you tell stories about yourself, are you the one who looks really good each time? Well, I can tell you, when you tell your stories and your brokenness never comes out, we all know it's a show. We all know it's a show. Christianity is not a call to become more religious or build a record for yourself or to right yourself. It's a call to rely on Christ and his righteousness. It's a call to come to grips with, I'm not righteous, but he is. I'm not enough, but Christ is. Is it any wonder then that that's why Jesus says in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who, in other words, as you feed on Christ, you actually have a sense of his righteousness in your life. If you don't know Christ today, I urge you to turn your hunger and thirst for life, for forgiveness, for meaning to Jesus, the one who can bring all that to you as a free gift. Christ as our righteousness has lasting implications in our life. What has, therefore, our Jesus got to do with our longing for a good life? We've been talking about this good life for a while, this righteous life where we can be satisfied. What's Jesus got to do with that? Well, Romans 3 and Romans 4 say this. There is now, now a righteousness apart from the law. And he goes on in chapter 4 to say, there is a righteousness apart from works. Romans 1 says the righteousness from God that has been revealed. That righteousness is the righteousness of Christ who hungered and thirsted for God's righteousness his whole life. He got it right when we didn't, guys. Christ set things right even to the point of going to death on a cross for you and for me so that we can be right with the Father because of what he's done and accomplished for us. Don't miss that. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty so that God would be satisfied. Don't you understand? Before you and I are satisfied, God has to be satisfied. And that happened at the cross with Jesus in a powerful way. Our satisfaction begins with Christ satisfying the Father once and for all at the cross. He is our righteousness, as 1 Corinthians 1 says. In him we are satisfied. <laughs> So what's that got to do with our future? Well, Christ lays out in our text lasting implications for this. He goes on to say, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the thriving life in him, they shall be satisfied. Did you hear that? Shall be? Notice the future tense in the second half of the verse. Satisfaction in this life apparently is connected to our future. That should be no surprise. Scientific American magazine 
in March of 2007, quotes Daniel Gilbert as saying that human beings are the only animals, we would say created beings, on earth that think about the future. And he says, much of our happiness depends on projecting what will make us happy. Think about it. If you have a vision for something, you think, I really want to be happy. How am I going to be happy? You look ahead to how you might be happy before you pursue it. In the same way Jesus is saying, we have hope for the good life. Our hope and satisfaction is based on what's coming for us in the future as Christians. We live in a world full of unrighteousness and hardship. We see and hear things every day that make us thirsty. We do things in our brokenness with our, each other that makes us hungry with, with, with God. But our thirst will be satisfied. Revelation 7 says this, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from their eyes. One day, when you die, and life for all of us is terminal, when you die, you can be in heaven with Christ if you trust him by faith. And you will taste a satisfaction with Jesus in a pure place once and for all. And on another day, the last day, when Jesus comes, he is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. One that will transform how we live in our culture and community. A real place of final relationship, a final renewal, a final reform in our lives. Real righteousness. That's coming one day. That's our hope as a Christian. But that begs the question, what about now? Can the Christian be satisfied now? Because there's no doubt we all feel our hunger and thirst, even after we've received Jesus for the first time, or for years on that fact. And here's what I'd tell you. You and I can taste daily a little bit of the hors d'oeuvres of the kingdom and of Christ's glory of what one day will be a banquet. Let me explain When you receive Christ by faith, you can be satisfied because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. God's presence is with you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. So even in the good times and the bad times that come with our age, God's with you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. Not only that, Uh, The real key to understanding following Christ is this. We have to wait on the Lord and seek him. Is it any accident Jesus later on in this very uh, Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your first priority, even above food and water, is to hunger for God and his glory and his righteousness. And here's what's going to happen. The more you follow Jesus, the more hungry and thirsty you'll get. The more you discover we live in a broken world and say, that's not the way it's supposed to be, the more hungry and thirsty you'll get. The more you discover, oh my goodness, I'm actually more prideful, more into power than I thought I was, you're going to get more hungry and more thirsty And at each one of those points, Jesus is saying, come, come and believe. Come and taste of me again. 
come and enjoy what I have to offer you. Deeper tastes of Christ await us, and he'll surprise you in how he provides. Most of you know that uh, with the recent diagnosis of my wife's cancer, uh, we both have been, of course, thrown off by this a whole lot the last few weeks. I'll tell you, I feel hungry and thirsty a lot, spiritually. And the result is that this past week, the past weeks, we've been thinking out loud about a million things to come, including, of course, financial needs. How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for our son to go to Davidson? How are we going to do this, that? And so I said, you know, Lord's got to work it out. Let's just focus on right now. So Friday, in a long-planned meeting with my financial planner, we sit down with him. And he, he actually had a sister who uh, passed away of cancer, and he could engage, and he's a believer, and it was a really encouraging conversation. And then at some point he says, Dean, I want to tell you something. Remember that life insurance policy you bought for Elizabeth two years ago? You know, that would carry you to the end and her to the end? I said, yeah. We say, you know, there's a rider that you paid for on that life insurance policy, which means the money that you would normally get as a death benefit in the event of a death of somebody, you actually can take it out now and pay for her cancer needs. I have to tell you, at that moment, he said it with tears in his eyes, and I was like, glory be to God. (laughs) He's taking care of us. You and I feel the unrighteousness of life, even in things like cancer. But i got to tell you, God will take care of you. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Hunger and thirst for him. And all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now. And we admit to you that uh, all of us here are in some state of hunger and thirst. We feel our need. But you call us to look to you to your way of setting things right. And we ask you today to do that with us individually. For those who may not know you here, I pray that you would open our hearts and help us to see our love of pleasure, or even our self-righteous tendencies, and that we would turn and call to you as the one God who can satisfy us at the deepest parts of who we are. And Lord, for those of us who've been following you for a long time, I pray that you would renew us with a hunger and thirst. You would stir us up with a longing for you that transcends anything that we would normally pursue because, Lord, the more we discover that our world is broken and that we are broken, the more we'll discover you are right and that you alone satisfy. Come, Holy Spirit, satisfy our souls. We need you. In Christ's name, amen.